We're going to begin a series today, beginning in 1 Timothy 4, and so we'll be there in about 45 minutes. If you turn first to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, and I want to spend a little bit of time here. Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. He has come to Jerusalem in preparation for his arrest, for his crucifixion. And in these final days, on a particular day, he leaves the city with his disciples. And he goes down to the Mount of Olives just outside the city. And he he sat down and his disciples asked him a question. The question was, near the beginning of Matthew 24, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And beginning in Matthew 24, Jesus proceeds to give a sermon which has been nicknamed the Olivet Discourse since he delivered this message on the Mount of Olives. And the theme of the Olivet Discourse is the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom on this earth. And we should make a note here, this is the longest answer to any question anywhere in the New Testament. When he gets to chapter 25, Jesus now deals with the judgments that Christ will make upon his return to earth. The judgments he will give. And in chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, Jesus tells a parable with a very basic message. And that basic message is, make the most of your spiritual opportunities while you can. Now, this parable has lessons for all of us, one of which will be our focus today. But it was given specifically in reference to the generation that will be alive on earth just before Christ returns. Chapter 24, verse 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, meaning the generation that's alive on earth at the time. Verse 36, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. But again, the parable has lessons for all of us. This particular parable, chapter 25, verse 14, is most famously called the parable of the talents in which Jesus exhorts us to make the most of spiritual opportunities. He tells the story of a landowner with servants going away. The landowner is going away on a journey, and he calls three of his servants to him before his departure. Verse 14 of chapter 25, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. So to these three servants, he gives talents. This is money. A talent was the equivalent of about 20 years of wages for a day laborer. So one servant receives five talents, 100 years of wages. One receives two talents, 40 years of wages. And one receives one talent, 20 years of wages. Still a a huge sum of money. These two verses would lead us to point out some important facts just about this introduction here. First of all, these servants are more properly called slaves. That's the meaning of the Greek word douloi, the the plural of doulos here. They were owned by the man, likely a landowner. Slavery in the first century 
that was a part of reality and in almost every case was not similar to our conception of slavery based on American history. So we're not debating the ethics of slavery. And I would note, by the way, that even in the Old Testament law, there were provisions for slaves to be freed because they had paid a debt and for slaves to remain faithful for a lifetime to a landowner who had treated them very well. In the ancient Near East and here in the first century world, as depicted in Matthew 25, some slaves were special slaves entrusted with the household or even to manage businesses of the owner. In fact, it wasn't unusual for a a landowner's slave to be much better educated than the landowner himself. But one thing is very, very certain, and we cannot get around this fact, nor should we try to. Jesus clearly intends to depict ownership, that these slaves belong to this man. It's another important fact. Given the context of Jesus explaining the kingdom of God, what it'll be like when he returns to the earth, the man in the story is Jesus, the master who will return. And the master expects the slaves out of a noble heart, out of an eager heart, out of a servant's heart to serve the master in the master's absence. He didn't expect equal output from the slaves. He expected equal effort from them. There's a third fact we would note that these slaves owned by the master and given these responsibilities, they represent professing believers in Christ. Professing believers, the visible church on earth without reference at first to the actual state of our hearts. That that all of us have been entrusted with the master's work, with the master's possessions. And as we'll see, that includes the gospel. And a fourth note here about this little introduction You notice that the man gives the slaves money to be used wisely, quote, according, each according to his own ability. Verse 15. He knew these men intimately. He knew their abilities, their giftedness, what they could and could not be expected to do. And we see this even in the 12 disciples with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are in the inner circle of the most trusted of Jesus' leadership. And Peter is at the head of them. So we have concentric circles, even in the the small group of 12. The implication is very clear here that believers in the coming kingdom and in this current age have been given differing areas of responsibility, different levels of giftedness by God. And we're not expected to give equal output, but simply equal effort. Well, you know how the story goes. The slave with five talents went and traded and made five more. The slave with two did the same and made two talents more. But the one with just one talent dug a hole in the ground and buried his talent to hide the money. The two slaves who used the master's resources wisely and used their time wisely were rewarded. And what was their reward? Their reward was increased responsibility. Verse 21 and verse 23. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. There are implications then for reward in the coming kingdom as being responsibility. Don't picture yourself in the kingdom of Christ um, sitting around playing the harp and singing songs all day. You will have responsibility. And from other areas of scripture, I could show you that this may include entire cities that you will be responsible for. And you might say, well, how, if every Christian is rewarded, then how come, how come some have more responsibility? Because some are more faithful. But what happened with the first one who hid his talent? 
Well, first, first of all, the slave insulted the master by coming to the wrong conclusion about him. In verse 24, he says that he knows his master is a hard man. He judges the master, that is Jesus Christ, as being harsh and distant and undependable. He had a distorted perception, a wrong perception of God the Son. The second thing that the one who hid his talent does is he immediately justifies himself. And he says, since you are a hard man, I I decided I'd better play it safe and just hide the talent. As if he's supposed to be rewarded for doing absolutely nothing. Now what does that mean? It means that that third slave didn't really know his master at all. There's no love, there's no affection, certainly no trust. This is the professing Christian who has a corrupt view of God because he is only a professing Christian. He is still unredeemed, unregenerate, unsaved. So what was the difference between the first two slaves and the third slave? The first two demonstrated an eagerness for the master's return, an eagerness to serve him in the meantime, proving the genuineness of their salvation. Can you imagine that moment when the first slave says, I have given you five more, I offer back to you. That's a moment of joy, a moment of delight. They're genuine. But the third demonstrated a dread of the master's return. He says, you are a hard man and I fear your return. It reminds me of what the Apostle John says to the professing church, meaning Christians and non-Christians who all say they're Christians. He says in 1 John 2, 28, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Put yourself in the shoes of the first two slaves who made five and made two talents more. When they find out that the master is returning, I'll bet they're tossing and turning that night with excitement and with joy. How about the third slave? The master's returning. Oh, no. What happens with the false slave? The one whose heart is not right, who is not redeemed. Chapter 25, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We cannot say this is a believer. This must be an unbeliever. The third slave isn't just lazy. He's not just unfaithful. He has no faith. He's not a true follower of the master. So there is a lesson for the unbeliever. The lesson for the unbeliever is that if you have no faith or love for God, no saving relationship because of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the faking, all the religious posturing, all the church attendance in the world will not save you. Ultimately, you will be found out. You will be judged. You will be revealed. All secrets will be made known. And we might ask, what is the talent? What was this one thing that the unfaithful slave was given. It could be the knowledge of the gospel. It could be being around other believers who are proclaiming the gospel to you. Hebrews chapter 6 makes the case that unbelievers can enjoy the fruits of being around Christians. Maybe even reading your Bible but refusing to believe the truth. How many people will go to hell having had a shelf full of Bibles in their house? Whatever the talent represents... 
It's ultimately taken away because it was buried. It wasn't utilized. And there's a lesson for the believer. The true Christian who uses spiritual opportunities will be rewarded. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, but using other parts of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, for example, we do see that there is the category of the true Christian who wastes his spiritual opportunities. He will still go to heaven But 1 Corinthians 3 says it'll be like somebody escaping from a fire with nothing but his birthday suit on. Nothing. His worthless works will be burned up. What happens with them? They get to be the ones serving the ones who have been faithful. Now, that's not to say they won't be happy in heaven. I'd rather be in heaven with nothing. I know that's the case for all of us. And so this master gave talents, spiritual opportunities to all three Two who were true followers of the master and each of them were given according to their abilities and, the conse- and, in, and consequently they were rewarded in the same fashion. Both heard words from the master which are precious to us. Words which the true believer in Christ, we literally wait a lifetime to hear these words. Verse 21 and verse 23, well done good and faithful servant. But if we take that reality of the Lord Jesus rewarding his faithful for using their spiritual opportunities to the corporate level, to the church-wide level, we could make the case that the Lord is evaluating not just individuals, but local churches and their use of spiritual opportunities. We have many such evaluations in the New Testament, so this isn't speculation at all. It's, it's fact. For example, Romans 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Roman church, says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The Roman church was famous for their faith. They were well known. He said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, For this reason, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. The Ephesian church was known as the church where you could be loved, where you could be cherished. How about the Philippian church? I thank my God, this is Philippians 1, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They supported the work of the ministry. They supported evangelism. They supported missions. To the church at Thessalonica, Paul wrote in chapter 1 that they had received the gospel even in the midst of persecution and that they were a working church. They were a laboring church such that their impact went into multiple Roman provinces. At the church at Thessalonica, if I could put it this way, the shepherds of that church didn't have to ever get up and say, please, will somebody teach Sunday school? They were always working. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus himself gave the evaluation in Revelation 2 that they've suffered greatly for the gospel, but their reward is coming. They should hang on. They should be faithful. To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus commended them for being a church with a little power, like a a little church. But they kept the word of God and they'd been faithful. And what did Jesus say? He said, I'm going to give you an open door. On the other hand, The loving, faithful church of Ephesus later in Paul's lifetime had become infiltrated by false teachers. Timothy was sent there to correct them, get rid of the bad ones, correct the ones who were correctable. 
In Revelation 1, the church at Ephesus is commended for having better doctrine. Apparently their doctrine uh, corrected, but what did they lose? Their first what? Love. Paul condemns the churches of Galatia for having turned to legalism instead of staying true to the gospel. I mean, Galatians chapter 1 is, is like on fire. There's no, hey, how are you? It's, you're wrong. And of course, Jesus himself evaluates the church at Pergamum. They're following radical new teaching, sort of like churches today following uh, the false wokeness ideology. That's what Pergamum was doing. Thyatira, Jesus evaluates, they're allowing sexual sin in their midst. And he says, I'm coming after you if you don't deal with this. The church at at Sardis, he evaluated as, as a phony show church with no content. They would have been the church that had all kinds of stuff on the walls, all kinds of junk everywhere, but there's no content. Laodicea, Jesus said, you're a church proclaiming prosperity instead of the gospel. So it's very, very clear from Scripture that Jesus Christ, the master of all Christians and the head of the church, has a view not only toward you as individual believers, but toward local churches as well. I'll come back to this. I want to kind of update you on our current situation and we'll tie these together. The Lord in His gracious mercy and kindness has laid it upon your hearts to be very generous with the money that's already His anyway. And you have given to this point over a million dollars toward our new facility. By God's grace, we secured a loan sometime back that will keep us ahead of inflation It was the right thing to do. And with the monies left over from our loan down payment, we're right in the middle of remodeling even as we speak. Let me give you several side notes about all of this. The building needs lots of work. We know that. We're in phase one of four phases. And phase one will pretty much use the last penny that we've raised so far. And so if you want to do two, three, and four, that's entirely up to you. Uh, But just so you know, uh, phases two, three, and four include more bathrooms, so I know that you'll be motivated for that. (laughs) The ladies are opening their purses now. I will give now for that. (laughs) Side note number two, and this is by way of compliment to you, because you helped with the demolition phase of remodeling, you saved us $25,000. So you wrote a check for $25,000 more just by showing up and hauling stuff out of there. So thank you for your labors of love. Side note number three, giving glory to God for His sovereignty. You remember our disappointment about a year ago at not being able to purchase the building on District Boulevard? If we had been able to purchase it, as it turns out, between the price of the building and the massive renovations that would have been needed, it would have cost us well over a million dollars more than we're spending now. So God knew we were going this way. He said, no, we're going to go this way. One more side note, uh, next Sunday, Grant Oweiler is going to be doing a longer presentation to update you on the remodel, and then we're going to do something fun together as a church, which I'll let, I'll let that uh, come to you another time, but we'll get a longer presentation. But I want to give you a little bit of perspective about all this. I've been privileged to deal with quite a few churches in various situations regarding facility needs. I, I get calls about this on a regular basis for whatever reason. I've seen building programs that took 20 years. Let me put it to you this way. Four-year-olds giving their quarters are in college before the building ever gets built. How disappointing. Oh, you're going to have a basketball court. Well, apparently not, Dad. That didn't happen. 
I've seen churches fall apart and split over preference issues, making the building the focus instead of Christ's kingdom the focus. That's the whole point. I've seen leaders raise so much money and then they get scared to spend the money that it's literally they abandon the building project so they can have money in the bank. That's a bait and switch to the congregation. And I've seen building campaign money have to be drained for regular expenses because the church leadership goes off the rails theologically or or a pastor leaves in the middle of a building campaign. For perspective, in our particular case, the Lord has been very, very, very gracious and kind. Yes, there are definitely some challenges along the way and Grant will share some of those with you next week, but they're all easily overcome. All in all, we can point to endless pieces of evidence, time after time after time, of the Lord's faithfulness. And what does this do? What it should do for us is spur us on to greater trust, greater faith. Given the fact that the Lord seems to have been so very gracious and kind and seems to have His hand on our ministry, I would hope and pray that this kindness from the Lord stems from our efforts as a church to be faithful in the little things, as we saw in the parable of the talents. To be faithful to keep the preached word as the highest form of worship of all. To be faithful to constantly say that a pulpit is the most important piece of real estate on planet earth. To be faithful to worship God together regardless of what unbelievers say we can or cannot do. To be faithful to have a sound ecclesiology with godly leaders, godly servant leaders. To endeavor to reach beyond our walls with the one product that we have to offer, and that is the truth. We don't offer rehabilitation. We don't offer services. We don't offer counseling. We don't offer anything except the gospel. That's the only cure for the ills of mankind, which is sin. And it seems that God continues to bring not only new souls into the kingdom, but new talent and godly people to do the work of the ministry. Because of, for example, some of the professional services of people within our own church, we have saved in excess of six figures just because some of you have donated your expertise already. That is God's gift. So why are we talking about this? As your shepherd, I am acutely aware of the tendency of any church to get smug, to get haughty, to get filled with self-importance and we never want to see that happen here. Just to give you a little perspective, Grace Bible Church essentially has a 25-year history. In my mind, because we own a facility for the first time in 25 years, as of December when we closed on that, for the first time in 25 years, we're not a church plant. So we have no reason to get smug. A 25-year-long church plant is kind of a long time, isn't it? Kind of like having that you know, 47-year-old still living at home with mom and dad. All right, time to go here. But that doesn't mean that the ministry has made it. It just means we've made it to the starting blocks. And now God expects us to run a good race. We've just been given five talents. And so toward that end, we're going to begin in 1 Timothy chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6 a series we're calling Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. Thank you for turning to 1 Timothy. We're not going there quite yet. (laughs) Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. We'll get there eventually. This series should take us, Lord willing, approximately to the Sunday that we move into our White Lane building. I'm very burdened. I'm very hopeful that we're spiritually prepared, that we 
go into this opportunity with the five talents, with humility, with love for our Savior, that we're prepared such that the ministry continues in faithfulness. A lot of you have asked me, well, what are we going to do differently over there? The answer is nothing. We're going to do the same thing. We just want to do it at a higher level. We've been entrusted with much. We'll stay faithful. We'll even increase our faithfulness. And so today, I'm just going to give some introductory thoughts. Next week, we'll dive into 1 Timothy 4 in earnest, and we'll get there here shortly. But just to, for today, I'd like to use some time markers to organize our introductory thoughts. I want to talk to you about where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going, specifically in 1 Timothy. Where have we been, where are we now, where are we going, specifically in 1 Timothy. So first of all, where have we been? In the fall of 2018, for our annual Christmas preaching series, we preached a series called Our Gift to Jesus. The basis for this series was the faithful early church of Jerusalem as seen in Acts 1 through Acts 12. And we extracted some important eternal truths from these texts about the faithfulness of the church, what we call the gifts that the church gives to Jesus. Very appropriate for Christmas time. In our six-week study on the church in Jerusalem, we identified six gifts that the local church can give to the head, to Jesus Christ. First, we identified a well-ordered church. We saw that the well-ordered church was well-ordered in two ways, that the members know what to do and the leaders know what to do. The second gift we looked at was that we, we could give to Jesus a reliant church, a reliant church. And the church of Jerusalem demonstrated reliance upon the Lord in two ways. They relied on the power of the Scriptures and they relied on the power of the Spirit. We could give to Jesus a praying church, The church of Jerusalem prayed while they waited. They prayed for the leadership. They prayed for the servants. They prayed while they're being persecuted. They literally prayed while they're being killed for the faith. And they prayed in moments of crisis. We could give to Jesus a sacrificial church. The members of the church of Jerusalem showed two forms of sacrifice. Sacrificial commitment. First of all, the church as a whole was much more concerned about pleasing God than about pleasing men. And they showed it in sacrificial association. In the church of Jerusalem, they were all literally in danger for their faith. They were in danger by virtue of their association with Christ, their association with the apostles, and their association with one another. We saw that we could give to Jesus a loving church. And we identified four ways that the church of of Jerusalem was a loving church. They looked out for each other. They worshiped together. They learned together and they fellowshiped together. They, they lived their lives in the church together. And we identify the final gift that the church gives to Jesus, an evangelistic church. They had an unaltered gospel presentation. They had an expectation that converts would happen And they were aiming for disciples who follow Christ, not just slick evangelism programs that ends up with a bunch of false converts filling chairs. Now, the purpose of our gift to Jesus, that series, was to get our hearts together, to get our hearts right and Bible-centered concerning the church, concerning sound ecclesiology, even before we ever began raising one nickel for our new facility. But that was just the first preliminary preparation 
At our annual celebration banquet in January of 2019, we introduced the concept of raising funds for a new facility. But again, our emphasis stayed on spiritual preparation and having the right heart before the Lord. So we kicked off our preaching series, Joyful Generosity. Beginning at our celebration banquet in that January of 2019, we began a systematic theology, putting together a theology of giving, specifically showing the reasons that the Bible commands us to give. And we identified seven reasons. We give because of God's ownership. What does that mean? We give because God's privilege is that he's the one who owns everything and everyone. And we give because it's God's promise that he who owns everything and everyone will judge false believers and reward the true believer who gives with a faithful heart. Second reason we said we would give is we give because of God's grace. We give because of God's grace that you had nothing to offer God. God insists that you give up all your idols. No one can do anything to merit God's favor. But we say that with God, all things are possible, including salvation from sin. And we saw that because all these, of all these features of God's grace, we're to be like the woman of Luke chapter 7, who is so grateful and thankful for salvation that she gave to Jesus an extravagant gift. We said that we give because of God's provision that he provides for us. Our confidence in God, we said, was shown in three attitudes about giving. We give with expectation of the Lord's provision. No such thing as a giving Christian who starves to death. We give with care and consideration because we're confident in the Lord's provision. And we give with anticipation of the Lord's provision. We, we give as if his providing for us is a foregone conclusion because it is. We said the fourth reason was we give because of God's church. We give, first of all, because of the church's gift from God, which is men to teach you and to satisfy your souls with the very words of God. We give because of the church's gift to God. That is that you support the men who teach and who train you and feed you the word of God. And we give because of the church's faith in God. The church's faith in God has historically been expressed in a partnership between sheep and shepherds. And together, like the church at Philippi with the Apostle Paul, we work toward the furtherance of the gospel. We said that we give because of God's reward. This whole message was focused on one simple question. Is your treasure on earth or is your treasure in heaven? And we said that we give because of God's glory. We focused on the fact that God has ordained, this is something we don't talk about enough, that God has ordained sacred space in which we worship. A sacred space, we said, is the scriptural normality. The sacred space is a financial priority in the church, and a sacred space is a spiritual necessity for believers of all ages. And finally, we said we give because of God's kingdom. And I showed you from Revelation 21 and 22 that we give now because, hang on to your hats, giving is an eternal activity. Christians will give on into eternity. You'll always be giving to the Lord, even as God reigns on earth. Giving will still be part of your worship of Christ. And we built what I believe is a rock-solid theology of giving. It's part and parcel of our faith. And then as we kicked off our fundraising with Commitment Sunday and Celebration Sunday, we raised $300,000 in one week. We stuck with the name Joyful Generosity as a nickname for our capital campaign. We even put a book out to help those coming after those original ones to understand. 
But less than a year into our official joyful generosity campaign, little did we know that God in His sovereign mysterious plan had a challenge for us and for every church, a test called COVID-19. I hear the groans. I understand this was a test that stretched us. It stretched our leadership to points that we never had been. For the first time in my own ministry life, we literally had to defend our right to sing. We had to defend our mandate from God to gather together in worship. We had to reassert our belief that a disease is not sovereign, but God is sovereign. We had to reassert our belief that the government has no jurisdiction over the worship of God who created government in the first place. That the church's role is not public health, but public proclamation. In fact, we preached so many sermons trying to work our way through that issue that we ended up with the book, The Essential Church. And this is what drove us to make 2021 the year of the church at Grace Bible Church. Because we're the bride of Christ, we're the chosen of God, we're the elect of every age, the saints in every place. And we had to take a stand that the world had better learn to fear Christ and respect His bride. And we believe as the Lord has led and helped, we've seen such tremendous fruit from that time. Many people saved, countless people listening to our messages online now. We added about 50% to our church membership since that time. And despite officially pausing joyful generosity and telling you you didn't have to give anymore, you you continue to be remarkable, to be extraordinary, to be kingdom-focused, And to be determined to give and give and give. And you demonstrated that you understand that this is the Lord's money in the first place. It was the Lord's money before you gave it. It's most definitely His after you give it. And so the money's not ours to use as a means of security or even to hoard. It's to be used for the King's glory. And you're showing that desire for that to happen. We don't want to be a church that when Christ returns or when the rapture happens that that we say, oh look, isn't it great? We have $10 million in the bank. We want to have thrown the last nickel at the gospel proclamation as we're going, right? If we can time it out that way, I don't know if that'll happen, but that would be a great thing. So that's where we've been. Where are we now? Where are we now? We're in a spiritual battle. It's always been there but it is incumbent upon the faithful local church to keep our eyes open, to keep our ears open, and never forget that we're in a fight. A major part of that battle is won by staying very clear on our connection with one another, our connection with and as the church. Because our culture is trying desperately to divide the church. Satan wants to divide the church, trying to turn believer against believer. So where we are now... Where we are now is, I want to just give you some reminders about the deep connection of being in Christ and being in the church. American Christianity has successfully made far too big a disconnect between coming to faith in Christ and coming to join with the church in life and in body. But the New Testament doesn't make that disconnect at all. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to make an extremely close connection. So before we get to 1 Timothy, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 12, to the same text we read this morning. The Apostle Paul gives a lengthy illustration to point out the vital connection between being part of Christ and being part of the church. 
I know we read this earlier, but if you would indulge me, I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, once again. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranges the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Can I just stop for a moment? Slight interpretive issue here. What is he talking about? He says that the least of us is just as important as, from a worldly perspective, the the, the greatest among us. All of us were misfits without Christ and we're equal in Christ. We have different parts of our bodies, right? If you're a bodybuilder, you you show off your biceps. You don't go, look at what my pinky can do. This is so awesome. (laughs) But living life without your pinky would be difficult. All the parts matter. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I'd like to just make some observations here. I'm not going to teach through the whole thing. Just some broad observations about the connection between having faith in Christ and being part of the church. The first observation, the people of Christ are part of one body in Christ. Verse 12, one body in Christ. Someone might say, well, that just means I'm part of the church universal. That doesn't mean I need to be completely committed to any local gathering of believers. Well, actually, the rest of that passage makes that line of thinking ludicrous. That the way you express being part of the church universal is being part of the local body. And why are we part of one body in Christ? Second observation, verse 13, we've been made to drink of one spirit. This is what makes us one body. There's no such thing as the Christian with the spirit and the Christian without the spirit. All Christians have the Spirit. That's why we are in the body of Christ. A third observation. We are all different parts of the body, but we are all part of the body. We are all different parts of the body, but we're part of the body. The context of this whole passage is spiritual gifts. That different people have different giftings. Or could I put it this way? Like the parable of the talents, some are given more than others. What does that mean? It means we all have a function. We're called to fulfill this function In the church, starting my own Lone Ranger ministry and out of my home and saying, well, my family is the church. That's that's irrelevant and that's illegitimate. 
or, or showing up and just being a consumer of preaching. That's not truly fulfilling that function. There's a fourth observation. God has arranged the members of the body as he chose. In verse 18, he says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. Two things to emphasize here. First, God has ordained that we do our part. And second, God has gifted you to do your part. But there is no option for, I've decided not to do my part. That option does not exist. There's a fifth observation. God forbids a lack of connectedness and interdependence together. He forbids it. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. We're not allowed to do that. It's the sixth observation. God designed the church to need all of us. And I just spoke about this. We have the weaker parts. We have the more unpresentable parts. Every local church has a few members that you kind of hope aren't the first people that guests run into, right? And all of you say, well, I'm glad that's not me. If you say that, it might be you. But the gospel is for everyone who would come to faith in Christ. Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthian church, hey, if you want to get haughty about this, remember there are almost no, nobody noble, nobody wise among you. Basically, you're all the weirdos of the world and God makes them into the church. But I think every church needs those less presentable parts. Every church needs those that are more difficult. Every church needs those that are less capable I have a place in my heart for, for the mentally disabled. I think you do too. The church needs them because if you could see them as they will be in glory, you might accidentally fall down and worship them. God designed the church to need all of us. One more observation. There's no place for being a partial part of the church. There's no place for that. You're either in or you're out. You don't get to be somehow an aloof part of the body that doesn't do your part. And my point in just looking at this text briefly is that the connection between being in Christ and being in the church is profound. And it is undeniable. Hopefully I've convinced you that being in Christ means obediently being all in with the church. So where are we going? How can we receive the commendation, well done, good and faithful church? I said 45 minutes, it's been 42. You can turn to 1 Timothy 4. And we're just literally going to skim through where we're going in the, in the coming weeks. It hopefully brings us kind of right up to our new facility, Lord willing. If I spend 10 weeks on the last verse of 1 Timothy, it means that they're still painting or something like that. We've taken a significant effort to lay the foundations of the church as found in 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 3. To be specific, we took 42 messages on those three chapters spread out over 18 months. Now we're going to get to the more practical outworking of what it means to be a faithful and a commendable church. So we're going to speed up a bit and over the next about 14 messages, we're going to identify some practical things that a commendable church does. And we'll use participles, I-N-G verbs, to identify these things. So follow along with me as we just walk through 1 Timothy, 1, 1 Timothy 4, uh, 5, and 6. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, we're going to see Paul's warning that many will depart from the faith, showing themselves to be fraudulent. And so to respond to this, we'll talk about, here's our first action, understanding the gospel. Understanding the gospel. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In verses 6 through 12, we'll see that we need men who lead by example. The very next verse, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In verses 13 through 16, we'll see that we must be focusing the leadership. Our leadership must be focused on a few good things. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And in those two verses alone, we'll see that we must be purifying the individuals. That we're looking for the sanctification of every one of you. The very next verse, chapter 5, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. In verses 3 through 8 and in verse 16 of chapter 5, we'll see that the church must be helping the vulnerable. We help the vulnerable among us. In verses 9 through 15, we'll see that we must be discipling the women. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In verses 17 through 24 of chapter 5, the church must be, here's our participle, evaluating the leadership. Evaluating the leadership. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather that they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And so in chapter 6, 1 and 2, in, in the world we represent Christ, so in the church we must be what we'll call honoring the name. Honoring the name. Chapter 6, verse 3 says that anyone teaching a different doctrine, verse 5, causes friction among people. So in verses 3 through 5, we must be guarding the flock. Chapter 6, verse 6, follow along with me. Classic verse, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And in verses 6 through 10, we're going to be exhorting in contentment. And we need to learn to be joyfully content. Chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. In verses 11 and 12, we'll see that we're, we are in a spiritual battle. We must participate in it. We are to be fighting the good fight of the faith. Chapter 6, verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll show you that this is directly related to the centrality of preaching the whole counsel of God. And so the church is to be engaged in what we'll call preaching the word. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The ministry of the church is to run on the financial faithfulness of the members, so we are to be giving in generosity. 
And finally, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul returns to his theme where he began in chapter 1, which was Timothy's commission to guard the truth. And so we end the book on that theme, guarding the truth. So these are the practical outworkings of a sound and healthy and obedient church, understanding the gospel, leading by example, focusing the leadership, purifying the individuals, helping the vulnerable, discipling the women, evaluating the leadership, honoring the name, guarding the flock, exhorting to contentment, fighting the good fight, preaching the word, giving in generosity, and guarding the truth. That is the foundation upon which we want to go to our new facility, firmly grounded in those truths, that the Lord might be faithful through us. My hope and my goal is to remove the separation in any of your minds between faith and life. They go together. You are first and foremost an ambassador of Christ. That's your job on this earth. And we do that as a group. Now I have good news and bad news. The good news is you have been so faithful. The bad news is is that what God requires of those who have been faithful is that they show even more faithfulness. To whom much is given, much is what? Required. Remember the parable of the talents where we began? If you would permit me to apply the plural to the central idea of this parable, to apply this to the church, this is what we want to hear. His master said to them, Well done, good and faithful church. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Well, that has happened already. We have been set over much. And so may we be faithful to the Lord. May we continue as he sets us over much, all for his glory, all for his fame. Shall we do that together? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord. We just began some thoughts here, but I'm really praying that 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6 would just set the pillars of our foundations of understanding of the church at at an even higher level, Lord. I think every person in this room desires to be a part of something great, of a church that is truly making a difference in the world, a church that is seeing souls won to faith in Christ, discipled and made into mature followers of Christ who in turn are disciple makers. Lord, even now, in our county, in our city, there are those that we believe you have sovereignly ordained will walk through our doors at 2301 White Lane And they will hear the gospel and in those moments of hearing the word of God, the spirit of God will move in them, regenerate their hearts and bring them to faith in Christ. And we will baptize them there in that building, Lord. And there they will publicly proclaim their loyalty, their fidelity to the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. We believe this, Lord. Help us to humbly approach that task. We praise you and thank you for giving us the talents, as it were. You have helped us to make them into five more. And now, Lord, we pray that you would do that yet again and again and again and again. Would you use us as a church beyond all that we could possibly imagine? 
For there is no greater satisfaction on this earth than to be about the business of the kingdom. And we pray that you would be honored, that Jesus' name would be famous because of this little body of believers that you have set over much. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.